Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin, and today I'm speaking to a very talented actor-turned-novelist. Her 2011 debut novel, When God Was a Rabbit, took the literary world by storm and saw her win New Writer of the Year at the Galaxy National Book Awards. Since then, she's published three more novels, and today we're going to discuss her most recent work, Still Life. Spanning over four decades, Still Life transports readers from Florence to London as she explores family, truth and love. Sarah Winman, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello. It's lovely to see you again. It really with is. You. <laughs> I remember interviewing you for your very first book, yeah. which did so incredibly well and was really it was sort of reflected a lot of your own childhood in mm. Cornwall, didn't it? Remind us a little bit about your early life. My early life? Well, Cornwall was that my grandparents... So all the books, and I suppose this is quite relevant to what we will go on to talk about. So the three books... Uh, those first three books were about places that I knew very, very well. So my all my family came from Oxford. I wasn't. I was born in the eastern suburbs of London. But one set of grandparents, the ones who worked at the car factory, they moved to Cornwall when they retired. And that was probably about 53 years ago, something like that. Obviously, they're not alive now. But that was what informed childhood holidays, you know, being spent with them down there. So... I spent a lot of time in Cornwall. I spent, obviously, a lot of time in the eastern suburbs of London. And that was what was the basis of Rabbit. And I do remember I'd given in a book to Robert, my agent, previously, and he was going to submit it. So that was actually the first Tin Man. I had the chance to go back and recreate a new book. And he was saying, you know, if, if this book sells, you are going to have to write a book very quickly. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness, okay, 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 I can do this. And I remember getting on the train a couple of days later, heading to Cornwall, and that was the idea, that was the picking up of, well, what would happen if I moved a group of people down here? And it's always those little what-ifs, and it often happens on a train or moving away from the familiar, so... Extraordinary. I mean, there was a big what if in your life, because what if you had just stuck to acting? You trained at Weber Douglas. I did. And went on to work? I did a lot of work in those early years, you know, and a lot of work that I wanted to do in those early years. So a lot of theatre, and then it mixed in. And then I wanted to do camera work, because when I was at drama school, there was none. It was solely voice work and, you know, stage technique and movement and dance. But even then, you know, movement, dance, singing, no. <laughs> so it was quite limited. And I think a lot of us sort of wanted to kind of work with camera. And so... I don't know, that was the choice and I moved and I was suddenly going oh, no, I want to be a bit more in, a bit more based in London and I didn't want to travel it was all a funny kind of decision making I think it tied up a bit with also coming out you know, in those early 20s and that sort of insecurity and wanting to be more at a base I think at that time mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure but yes, had I stayed with it I probably wouldn't have written because I realise now that I'm very, I get very focused on one thing. Mm, mm. In the downtime, I can do lots of things, but when I start to do the one thing, that's it, and I find it 
difficult, even for fun, to sort of merge off and do something different creatively. Yeah. Well, this book, I mean, I've read everything you've ever written. I love your work right from the get-go, as they say. I think this is your best work yet. It is absolutely extraordinary. It's just, I'm trying not to kind of, you know, uh, wander into cliche here, but I I want to call it luminous, really. Um, (laughs) It's over four decades, as I said, and it's, it's based between East London and Florence. And I wonder, and there's there's a bit of E.M. Forster in there, there's also, it's about creating your own family too. Mm. I wonder where the the Florentine aspect comes in. Is that somewhere you're very familiar with? No, not at all. That's that's what I was leading on to. I didn't. So I was in Florence and that was on holiday. Had no intention of writing about Florence. I mean, who would? It really, if you're in your right mind, because it has been done so often. (laughs) What what is there that's new? Yeah. So that, was, that wasn't sort of close to sort of my creative thinking at all. So I was there and I was just looking it up. I'd just finished a basic Renaissance art course at the National Gallery. And then that holiday, so it was sort of 2015, was when I discovered about the flood. And I knew nothing about it. And there have been two major floods, we should say, but centuries apart. Yes, they, absolutely there was. There was the 1333. They, somebody has worked out that that when it's, you know, you've got three figures all the same all together, or two, definitely, that's when the floods happened. So there was 1333. I think there was, there was also one in 44, a very, very small one, which I had included in one aspect, and I thought, oh, no, no, you can't have two floods. <laughs> You learn these things. So we have the one in 66. Yeah, it was interesting, but it wasn't the story. And then I was talking to the owner. I was in this restaurant when I saw these photographs, and I was talking to him. And then he started to talk about these young men and women, predominantly, who came to the city to clean up. And then he's saying, and then some of them stayed. And he had some photographs. He brought out a book. And he said some stayed, some fell in love. And I can feel this little twinge. And it is like falling in love. You know, it's got the fear and the love in there. And I thought, oh, you've met me now. OK, so this is it. This is a story. And it's true. And then the more I learnt about this, about these kind of these young people, you know, I will just say that this flood basically left behind a tonne of mud for every citizen in this city. So it coated everything. Businesses destroyed. There was no food there was no water, no clean water. You know, it was decimation. Artworks, 14,000 movable artworks needed tending to. Millions of books that have still not been repaired because they took the covers off in order to dry them and they never went back. And there was no help coming from central government. So you've got to start placing it. And I suppose that's when you start building a story that you go, 1966, OK, so this was, you know, these are the children or the young people of the war generation. So in that period of 20 years, youth hostels along, around Europe had doubled. So what they're trying to do is they are encouraging that unification, that understanding and the democracy and that we're all the same and, you know, there isn't difference in order to maintain sort of peace and stability and it's kind of economic stability. Mm. And then you start building that and it's like, OK, yeah, there's, there is a story. So that was the starting point. I thought it would have been bigger than it was. And then I realised, OK, we skipped the war and then we've got to work out how far we're going to go. Well, I mean, it, it really works. It all hangs together fantastically. But you met one of these real-life mud angels. I did, yes. And Evelyn, I guess, is, is pretty much based on her. It sort of was. Evelyn was around before her. So 
But what I needed for Evelyn was content because I, I'd made her this art historian, but I didn't know enough, as you do. So Evelyn, for those who don't know, we meet Evelyn and she's 64 and she's a lesbian and she's having this argument with somebody else. That's when we first meet Evelyn at that time. Now, who I met, Stella Rudolph, was married to a man. She was married to Gian Lorenzo Mellini. So they were two very well-known in their period of time art historians. Her speciality was, as she called it, Baroque, Calumarati. So, but what she gave me, I mean, she, she was just glorious. You know, there was, she was one of a kind and she was eccentric and funny and brilliant. And she was a brilliant academic and very supportive. She thought I was an art history student. She couldn't quite get around. So every time I'd see her, she goes, well, what are you working on now? I go, well, no, a novel. <laughs> oh, still? I went, it's only two months ago since I saw you, Stella. So this was how it went. And then it took a little while to get through the sort of academic mind, as I say, because, you know, I knew exactly what the novel needed. And if it was too academic, it would be exclusionary. And if it wasn't, if it was what I knew, that wouldn't have been really enough or wouldn't have been more thought-provoking. So um, he was waiting to get through that. And we did get through it. And then, yeah, you know, if, when I was doing the audio, then reading her, I, you know, there was so much of her. I mean, I go on to say, you know, Stella died in May two years ago now. And so I do I find, I do find it a little bit moving, because not because they're my words, but because they're hers. Mm -hmm. And I can remember exactly where we were when she would say certain things. And I would be following her with this notebook. She goes, oh, notebook again. I went, yeah, 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 yeah. Just slow down, just slow down. Scribble, 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 scribble. But, I mean, one of the, the great things that I think probably came out of those conversations is the whole theme in the book about the relationship between sitter and artist. Mm. Just explore that a, a little bit for us. I suppose it's, I call it response, you know, and how does one look at a work of art? And what is that relationship? That it is the relationship between artist and sitter, but it's also the relationship between the artwork itself and the viewer. Mm. Um, and they are slightly different. But, but what I wanted to do is to break down the mystery of that because the whole thing is really about making art accessible. And this is what the conversation between Evelyn and Ulysses always is. And I suppose that is, is if we move over slightly, that was the, the satire within Forster's A Room with a View, sort of English social history. And who has the right to comment on art? Mm. You know, and it has always been particularly a white male gaze, privileged gaze, sort of looking down on that and that only that voice has the right to comment. And so what's happening here is is that she's not. She's saying, you know, of course we can go into that. We can go into the dates and I can talk to you about, you know, why these colours were important and why we were breaking away from, she would say, high renaissance into mannerism and what that means. But she says at the end of the day, it's what you feel. What is that relationship that is happening with that piece of work and inside you know, you, your instinct, your feeling, you know, and it might have nothing to do with that work per se. Mm. It might be because it's dreamscape, isn't it? It's all that stuff that we just can't bring into our consciousness, but a piece of music, words from a play or a book, but, you know, something visual catches that, catches the hidden 
and surprises us. Mm. There's an element of magic realism in the book with the parrot, Claude. Tell us about him. You know, it's an element. People say that. I'm not sure people go, oh, the parrot speaks. And I'm like, well, they do, don't they? I mean, not not often in direct (laughs) response to questions. (laughs) I know. No, true, 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 true. Um, Claude was there as a comedic foil. And that happened before when a character, I had a character who was a comedic foil, and actually they stayed the journey. So he was there as that. And it was really, you know, I'm visualising Ulysses coming back and he's walking along the street and he's got off the bus and trot, 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 and he throws open the pub doors and it's like, so what's there? Well, everyone's there. And of course there would be a parrot. And the comedy was that it was mute, as I said, and it was, you know, kind of lost its feathers because he had post-traumatic stress. And then, as Cole says, you know, strange thing before he malted, you know, what he said, what did he say? He said, uh, the quality of mercy is not strained. Strained. That's a strange word for a parrot to use. And I didn't know I was writing this. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Do, 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 do. Best 50 Shakespeare quotes. Because <laughs> I forgot most of them. And I go, yeah, could use that at some point. Yep, 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 yep. So the whole thing was very light because this book was supposed to be a real joyous ride ultimately. And then as I moved on with Claude and the story, I realised that that representation at the beginning was the representation of the community. That he, the state he was in was really what the community yeah. was in. Yeah, and that's what he was representing, and also, you know, the conscience and and what the unsaid, I suppose. Yeah, because a lot of it, I mean, it's set part of it in this East End pub, but it's about creating your own family. It's yeah. about how people come together in in ways that that, that are that are not biological yeah. necessarily. It's also, as you say, he was a comedic foil. The book is very funny, and every chapter ends with some kind of a joke. I particularly like the suggestion that a, a quite stuck up Englishman should take his wife up the door. <laughs> yes yes well it was a great opportunity to play with this and I mean that was in the 1901 section so the 1901 section was there a slight parody of a room with a view so the conceit was that which starts at the beginning of the book although you know it's the clues to that is with Evelyn saying that she met Forster and then I ran with that and it was like she did meet Forster at the Pensioni Simi And she gave him some of the good lines in a room with a view. And I thought, oh, that'd be great. And then that grew. And and then it became, you know, this is how these things do. You know, the instinct of just playing. Playing's very, very good for what really wants to come out. And then I realised as I learnt more about Forster and I went into his letters of that period of time, because he was travelling for a year with his mother on holiday. A year. So he was incredibly enmeshed with his mother. Mm. He was late at losing his virginity to a man. I presume that was the first time he lost his virginity. He was 37. Mm-hmm. And it happened during the First World War, and he was away from the country. And so I'm thinking, you know, he never wrote the book, really, the one that he wanted to write in his lifetime. He wrote terrific books. But one thinks about the gay novel that he would have liked to. And I know you can talk to me about Maurice, but that was written before mm-hmm. this encounter. Mm-hmm and then was edited by so many people of his friends group. And I don't particularly find it a successful novel or a particularly, you know, I don't know. I I think he could have done better. Mm. So we have Forster, who's hidden, and we have Evelyn, who's having the best time of her life, having an affair with a maid. 
And then I thought, you know, this is really about my freedom, my freedom as a gay writer to say I, I have, I'm so lucky to write what I want to write mm -hmm. in a way that, that he couldn't. And so a kind of a, a celebration maybe for maybe what he would have come up with. I want to talk about the audio book now because okay. I read this online, in fact, I think, and then had the proof and had a look at that. and then, But then I thought, now I need to hear the audio. Your background as an actor has just made this extraordinary. As I said to you earlier, I think this is the best audio book I have ever heard. There are so many characters in this book and every single one of them is distinct. You have a different voice for every single one of them. And the men are men. You believe they're men, but you're not putting on some kind of silly, really gruff voice. It just, you inhabit those characters. It's quite, quite extraordinary. And you also follow them as they age. Their voices change. Evelyn as a young woman to Evelyn as an old woman. The kid or Alice as she is from a five-year-old up to you know, 25. It's quite, quite mm. extraordinary. And I really want to know about the process of creating an audiobook. How, how do you go about that? Um, well, I was lucky. So I've always done my audiobooks. So when I went to do Rabbit, well, those years, I had to audition, really, which was so <laughs> typical because I hadn't quite left acting behind. And I thought, oh, here we go again. But I was given the part. And uh, I was then encouraged to do voices and I was never going to I was going to read it straight because I thought that was what was required you know literary fiction let's read it and he said no you wasted opportunity here have fun with it and do voices because you know this is you're bringing this alive think about people you know it's like theatre so there are people who prefer audiobooks but also think about people who who don't see too good and really do rely on these books bring it alive and it's like okay that was a great lesson and in the, I remember he's saying, you know, an underline, underline different characters with a different colour so you can see it coming or do whatever, but make it very, very clear. So that was the start. And ever since then, that's what I thought about was that this is so different to the book. The book's been written. This is something else. This is a slightly different medium. Mm. So let's have fun with it. Let's play with it. Let's make it very, very clear you know, like a radio play in a way. But of course, a book, it's a big book, you know, and it needs time. But we we did still did it in four days. Dave Smith, he was looking after me. He was sound production and also directing. And he was amazing. I mean, that's why they get done. And he would he could hear if I was getting tired, because there is a point that you're you're cracking on with it. And you forget the language that you're speaking in. You know, it's it doesn't make sense. When you're tired, it really doesn't make mm. sense. So I had an idea of how these characters would speak because in the writing of it, it was very clear that I would, in the scenes of great dialogue, I would do the voices in order to make sure that the the music right or the musicality and the rhythm. So I did have a sense of that. And then, you know, you prepare the night before, the tricky little moments... But also, you know, if you are stumbling or you're not, you do have time to go back. I mean, this is the whole point, you know, and and Dave's there in the booth and he's listening whether it works or not. And if he says, oh, I think you could have done that differently and we go back and we do it. So we still make time for that to happen. But you've got to, you've got to play with it mm. because as, so, as soon as the energy dips, it's all about energy, I see. As soon as the energy dips or you're really too tired, then you have to stop. 
because it will pick up. You know these mics; they pick up everything, mm. and and so it's it was very much about making sure the endings. You know, in English, we tend to go down on a on a sentence at the end. Keep that slightly up, slightly Australian. You know, keep it moving through and and carry on because it's there's a lot to get through. Yeah, huge, huge amount. Yeah. And as I say, all these different voices, including the trees. Now you were <laughs> you were denying any element of magic. Oh, I know. But there I are know. talking trees. Yeah, no, no, I don't. I suppose it's, yeah, I do know, I, I suppose it's because I know what the representation of those. And I suppose, yeah, I I suppose it is magic realism. But I I suppose when I think about that, that it's it's with one character. It's not about the changing of a world for a lot of people. And mm. that's why I start, I push against it slightly sometimes. Mm that actually, and I can explain why it's Cressy, it's nobody else. And then you start to get into, well, is it imagination? Is it, it's his sole relationship here. Mm. I did switch, yeah, I did switch the tree. I think one of the trees originally was a male tree, and I think I made it female because just in hearing it, it was like, oh, no, there's too many male voices here. So she did change gender slightly. There's also this really complicated relationship between mother and daughter. And this this quite shocking for many people discussion about actually you don't have to have children. And perhaps if you have them, you don't have to want to be with them all the time. Yeah. I have written about this before, women who choose not to be mothers. And then we must bring into that equation that they're they're incredible in society in the way they mother. So what they're actually saying is, I don't want this, I've never felt this, to have, you know, this situation in my life, and I don't... It's not about an incapacity to love. It's just about an... uh, It's about a capacity to love in greater terms than the children, really, that's what I'm saying. So it's... It's breaking down, I suppose, very much with this book, is the social constructs of family, of motherhood, of sexuality, of home, of all of those things under this sort of Catholic church and changing it and making it what I would call the feminine space Mm -hmm. in Jungian terms and the feminine energy of that, of choice, and what we have to do with that is to bring the men into that space. So what I've done here is Peg didn't want to be a mum, probably should never have been a mum, but people step in to make that transition and to make the child safe and thrive, and that's sort of what has to happen. So what I've done is I've moved, i put my men bringing up the children and the men in the kitchen and have freed up the women who um, have chosen not to lead that journey Mm. but capable of of great other things you know and I've just I've met these women I've met women of all ages I've met I have friends who have actually said oh my mum should never have been a mother and I just think it's a discussion I don't think you know if you have always wanted to then oh my goodness how amazing what a beautiful journey but I think I think also women should be allowed not to and not have to really explain why and that one day hopefully that will just become the norm you know and actually I need to say this is beyond gender because of course the world is gender and we you know seahorse dads and Mm. all of that now but I'm just talking specifically 
about the role of sort of cisgendered women that they have faced down the centuries. Mm. And, I mean, this comes back in so many ways in, in the book, and, and, and I love the way that the sexuality of, of all of the characters is completely accepted. There is no stigmatisation of anybody for being in a same-sex relationship. No. no. I mean, that was on purpose. So what we need to do is to go back to the tone of this book right at the start, and the tone of this book was always going to be joyous and always entertaining. And I have said before that it was the antidote to Brexit and all the divisions and all the political partisanship of that time and what was happening and and how society was being fractured. And I felt the weight of that. And so the books I was being drawn to was sort of laughter, kind of a real recharge. So if that is the contract in those first few pages, that's what you're saying to the reader. You know, this is what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you something joyous then that needs to go through it. That doesn't mean that there aren't, there aren't going to be moments of, you know, deep emotion, and I hope they oh, are there. Weeping in some points. <laughs> right. Yeah. But then it means that I've got to figure out how am I going to address a historical narrative of a gay historical narrative that, that has been illegal and has involved victimhood and abuse and all that. And what I did with all, all of these different, you know, the, the confronting, as I said, these social constructs, was to bring in the acceptance. It's like, well, there is none. This is just how it is. So I know that, that somebody, a couple of people said, yeah, but it wouldn't have been like that. I go, I know what it is because I've written about that before. But how fantastic to write about it so positively and actually reposition the gay narrative, that's what it was doing, mm -hmm. and how beautiful that sits. So why can't we have more of that? And why can't, why can't it be like that? Because what I'm doing with this book, I'm not creating some nirvana that, that is untouchable. It's really simple, actually. It's just acceptance. And this just shines through. The Sunday Times say that uh, your pages teem with boisterous, exuberant life. Graham Norton says sheer joy. Joanna Cannon, utterly beautiful, filled with hope. And that's exactly what it is. And also, of course, set against this incredible Italian background, the mm. beauty, the descriptions of, of the meals, of the sunsets, of the art, just all combined just to really, yes, give one... The sense of joy. Mm -hmm. And did you feel the sense of joy writing it? I did. I did. And I worked with somebody on, on bringing some joy back to, to creative practice because I think I'd been bogged down a little bit with it. You know, I think lots of people do when your creativity nudges up against the business side. And, mm. you know, you want that because you want to earn a living. But, but I think sometimes the playful element and the joy of that can go. So I did work hard with that. And also, you know, I, I did go, I went to the city a little bit because I didn't know the city very well. So I had to go and every time there was an intake of breath when I looked at how the light fell on some of these buildings. And there's no accident, that's the point. It was created that way. You know, you look at the architecture and there is, it is about beauty through harmony and order. And you start to see it everywhere you look and and it's a kind of a practice so and Evelyn says that you know art is repositioning of sight and judgment and that you can you you know after a while you might be sitting at a table and there's some flowers there and you your plate of food has just come or something and the light hits it a certain way and 
refracts through a wine glass or water and, and suddenly you start to see the art within the everyday mm. and the beauty within the everyday. And I suppose that's what the epigraph is, the beginning of still life, but, you know, when people go to Italy and, you know, and they are confronted with this art and beauty and it becomes part of someone's life. And that's what I wanted was that what if you give people opportunity who've never had opportunity? How does that change a life? Just by being somewhere, just by being confronted by all these things, you know, that it comes into you on a cellular level and you don't have to do much except exist there to have a betterment of life. And I think anyone would get betterment of life from reading Still Life. Sarah Winman, thank you so much for My coming pleasure. in to speak to me. Uh, Still Life by Sarah Winman is uh, published now in paperback by Fourth Estate. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Annabelle Martin. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.